I have had a woman in a very polite setting put her hand up. I was doing a corporate and there was like 800 people and she just stood up and she said, excuse me, can you leave? Because they were having dinner. And I went, no, I'm at work. And then I sort of looked to the owner of the bar. It was this beautiful tea room in Adelaide. And I go, Raul. And he goes, it's your show. If you if you want to tell her to fuck off, tell her to fuck off. <laughs> I was on the other side of the room. And I just went, I guess it's a fuck off from us. <laughs> Hey, kia ora team. Today's episode is brought to you by Mr. Vintage. Mr. Vintage is New Zealand's most iconic t-shirt brand. Doesn't matter if it's a local pop cultural phenomenon, a sporting event, or even a New Zealand personality, there's every chance that Mr. Vintage has made a t-shirt for them and some product for it. Kiwi owned since 2004, selling Kiwiana t-shirts and gifts online. There's even a range of king sizes for us bigger fellas. Today, Mr. Vintage and us want to give you an extra special special. How about 20% off any men's t-shirt? All you need to do is go to mrvintage.co.nz in the checkout, use the promo code FUNNY, F-U-N-N-Y, and you will get 20% off any men's t-shirt. Head to mrvintage.co.nz, enter the promo code FUNNY at checkout, for 20% off any men's t-shirt. Ursula Carlson, good morning. Thank you so much for joining me. I'm very excited to meet you and have a chat about all things funny with you. Thanks for having me. I was wondering if you were going to get me from Auckland or do you have a place in, in Australia? Because I wasn't quite sure whether you'd be in Melbourne or in Auckland or, or you just travel backwards and forwards, but you start, you live in New Zealand permanently. Yeah, I live, I live in New Zealand. I think when I'm in Australia, people assume, like when I'm in Melbourne, uh, people think I live in Sydney. When I'm in Sydney, they think I live in Melbourne. Um, and people in New Zealand think I live in Australia. But no, I live in West Auckland. I'm out in Henderson. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I don't I don't have a place. I fly back and forth, back and forth. I'm just there a lot. Right. Yeah. The Westies represent. And how's it been from you know, South Africa to West Auckland? Is that you know basically the same? I know you left South Africa because of some crime issues and that. Is it kind of the same being in West Auckland? You know. Um, no, because uh, like <laughs> I know people say there's you know, and, and especially in Ranui, like people think it's it's pretty hard and it's you know there's a lot of crime. And I'm not saying there's no crime, but I've not once at night laid in bed and listened to gunfire. So it's yeah. honestly, it's nothing. Like when people go, oh, this is a proper shithole or this is a, like uh, one of the school mums came over the other day, we organised a play date. And when she drove in, I think she was really surprised. She's like, shit, I didn't think you'd live in Hendo. She goes, you, you're living mm -hmm. in proper ghetto. Like she goes, this is like the OG ghetto of Auckland. I'm like, okay. And she said ghetto about 20 times. And eventually I said, I don't think it's the compliment you think it is. Like, but I don't <laughs> There's really a shithole in New Zealand. I don't think there's a, you know, a terrible spot that I wouldn't live in. I'd live anywhere. Yeah, we're pretty lucky. I like moving to Dunedin from Auckland. We talk a bit about that. And there's nowhere that I would be uncomfortable my kids going during the yeah. day. You know, if it's two in the morning, there's always going to be some places anywhere. But there's nowhere in, in Dunedin that I'd be worried about with my, my kids heading off to at some stage. You know, it's, it's, it's yeah. and I think it's on some scale. That's the same for pretty much most of New Zealand, I think. 100%. Like even Narawahia, I know that's a bit of a hole, but 
it's so beautiful and when you drive through there or you hang out there everyone's so happy and friendly you're like oh i can deal with this and again no gunfire so all good yeah i know randui i looked at a section out in swanson once beautiful big three thousand square meter section out there and never went through with it but it's a, it's a lovely area a lovely green yeah nice community eh? yeah great really good yeah um although where you grew up seemed to be a little bit different from most new zealanders experience literally did you have a property on the border of kruger national park yeah so we um okay so i grew up in a town called benoni but then we also had the a game farm which is bordering on the kruger national park and it's called right. Ingualala, which means where leopards rest um and yeah so it was it was wild like we would go there every long weekend every school holiday like you know we just go to the farm and then we used to hate it we used to go we don't want to go we just wanted to go to the beach because everyone else always goes to the beach and when you watch movies people go to the beach on holiday you don't <laughs> stay inside because there's a lion in the carport you know or like where the giraffe a baby giraffe drowned in our pool once stuff like that like you know that you go well this is insane you know we just want to be at the beach and then my mum used to go one day you're going to look back at this and you're going to miss it because other people don't have holidays like this. And we used to think she's so full of shit. But now, <laughs> oh, yeah, like I got a I got a 22 rifle for my fourth birthday, you know, because you need to go out with a rifle. Um, I mean, I never went out with one because I have an older brother um, and he did he did most of that. Not that we ever shot anything, but you kind of need to be safe when you go out, as, you know, everything from wild boars to snakes to whatever you know and it's just normal did you um like you talk about Ingualala, if i pronounce that correctly being the place that the leopards rest i love yeah. how like indigenous cultures kind of call places you know what they literally are there's a place in dunedin that got anglicized unfortunately to wingatui but the original maori place name was wahingatui which means yeah. where the tuis are separated like they think it was probably where maori took the birds and that was the place they prepared them as food um yeah. and coming from because there's you know i don't really understand south africa other than they're, they're you know they play 10 ball rugby sort of thing um yeah. but what was it like coming out of that area that obviously the world of Africa, you know, the, the origins of life has a lot of indigenous sort of qualities to it and influence from it coming to New Zealand, which has a much younger indigenous culture. And we're going through the whole, you know, how do we sort out the wrongs from the past? Was there any sort of similarity between the two? Did you see it in New Zealand and did it relate to South Africa? How did that, when you moved over here in the early 2000s, did, what did that feel like to you? I mean, South Africa was kind of, a weird place to grow up in you know because i grew up in the 70s and 80s and then in the 90s we had the truth and reconciliation committee because because yeah all those years growing up um they kind of just tried to ignore uh any other cultures and that it was only white 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 and then uh in the 90s it's like someone just you know pulled the handbrake on the country and we went into a massive handbrake uh spin to try and fix it um but i think what's amazing is how uh, i'm gonna say how seamless it was like we changed everything our flag our national anthem city names town names names of you know things that we do activities all this stuff just changed basically overnight and because the the country was so ready for it um it's weird like it's jarring to see our old flag 
and that's the flag wow. that I grew up with. But when I see one now, like I went to help my brother um, at a friend's house, a South African guy's house here in Auckland, to move something because I've got a ute, you know, so you're always busy. <laughs> so I, I, my brother said, can you come help me? There's a friend of mine. So as soon as I walked in, I saw he had the old flag in his garage. And I said to my brother, I don't want to help this guy with anything. He's a fucking racist. I'm leaving. And then my brother's like, shit, I didn't even notice it. Yeah, I'm leaving wow. too. So I was just left. And it's like, I think um, the, you know, like the preparedness uh, and the, you know, like I always say, the difference between Australia and New Zealand is in Australia, there's a lot of tolerance for, you know, the indigenous culture. But I think in New Zealand, they celebrate it. And I feel yeah, like right. I'm in Africa now, everyone celebrates someone else's culture. Um I mean, yeah, there's still heaps of problems in, in all of those countries. And I think it'll take it'll take generations to fix because it was generations worth of fucking it up. I was I've always been interested in that that transitional stage in South African history. I did talk back for a long time. And I often used to talk when a South African uh, you know, New Zealander, but born in South Africa, would phone me up. I'd always be interested, did you live through that? Because it must have been so weird. I can remember Paul Holmes doing a seven PM show on TVNZ during that period and, yeah. and being at a um being at a like a, a public swimming pool that was whites only and then it became you know, open to everybody and getting the reaction of people the week before and the week after. I just, I wonder because, you know, right or wrong, good or bad, well, wrong, but for people individually, they get yeah. taught something so they believe it. And then to be taught the next week, oh, all these people are now your brothers and sisters and equal. That must have been on some level so difficult for so many South Africans, not to defend the previous statements that they had, yeah. but just the, yeah. the literal transition must have been a complete mindfuck. Yeah. Like I, um, I just saw a clip this week on TikTok um, in South Africa. There's still, you know, because there's always going to be fucking racist groups everywhere, and there's still a group of people who have this holiday park, and they try and keep members only, which is code for only yeah. white people. And then a brown family went to swim there, and they, you know, sort of got into a fist fight with them. And, again, it's as jarring as seeing the old flag. And you go, it's, I guess it's the same as, like, when you see – a bumper sticker in Australia that says we're full or, you know, you kind of go, how does your yeah. head work? How does it, or at any Trump rally, I guess, you know, you kind of go, I yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> how does this work? Like, how do the dots connect in your head? But um, I think it, because during that time, during the, um, you know, the late 80s, early 90s, it was so, because there were so many protests and sit-ins and, and it was amazing because my first ever election that I got to vote in was the 94 election where everyone wow. could vote. And it was just, you know, like everyone in my group, my matric class, we all went together, we queued up for hours and then we voted. But we had also been part of all the protests and sit-ins and, you know, sitting at the library because they wouldn't allow, um, you know, any people that, that weren't white in and we would rip all those whites only um, plaques off and, and throw them out. And so I think when it did change, yeah, of course there was a percentage, you know, the same people who would still support Trump today um, that was kicking against it. But the overwhelming feeling in the country was celebration, you know, and that's why there was such a massive push for it because everyone was yeah. Or the majority, at least, was pushing, um, and so I think even even when I was born, 
Uh, I remember like one of my first memories was my mom hiding people in our sleep out and going, if anyone asks, it's just your auntie and uncle staying over for the night because, um, you know, only white people were allowed in white suburbs. And especially if you, if you were a person of color and you were working in a suburb where the white people lived, you had to have a pass, right? right. The passport. But you had to be out of that suburb by six o'clock at night or you get locked up. So my mom would like, especially so if, say if you're a person of color and you need to travel, you know, say seven hours, right? There's not enough hours in the day to go from where you are because you're limited to the transport that you use to all of the stuff to get to, say, if you need to get home to your kids or whatever, or you want to get across the border into a different country, you can't do it. So my mom used to hide people in our sleep out and then the next morning they would go because then they'd be allowed in the in the neighborhood to walk, you know, carry on on their journey. So my mom used to hide people. And I remember in the 80s there was a time when my mom got in trouble with the police because we lived in a small town. And um, they knew she was up to helping and anti-government, you see. So we we nearly had to move to Australia because she's like, they're going to throw us out of the country. And she's like, and I'm happy with them. We're not changing anything. But then the, the tides changed so fast because people were like, this is bullshit, you know, and, and everyone in the neighborhood was doing the same thing. It was just the cops and the government that was like, you know, but so, yeah, I think short answer. Um, there was overwhelming, <laughs> more, more positive than negative. Um, I've got one other question for you about South Africa, because uh, in South Africa, I believe you won an award for photo retouching. And I'm thinking yeah. you're a stand-up comedian. You're you got lots of stuff going on. You're you're very skilled at that. And I'm thinking, other than sounding like some kind of repetitive crime to an image, what the fuck is photo retouching? And how can you get me ready for my close-up, Mr. Deville? That's what I want to know. <laughs> um, I've actually got one, two, three, four, five, six awards for it. Um, it's right here on the wall. I uh, so because photo retouching is like so in New Zealand. I did it too. I retouched the Briscoe's lady, Tammy. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, because and, I, and every time I see the ad now, I'm like, I don't know who they've got now. So, um, <laughs> it's like you know, just and and the same. I used to do Posty, and then we did the rebrand from Posty to Posty Plus, and then back to Posty. Or no, no, it's Posty Plus again. Posty Plus to Posty to Posty Plus. Very confusing time. But so I specialize in fashion and food. So even the burgers and stuff, like um, Burger King would say. Um, have a burger and I would redo the sauce on the burger to look the same color wow. that it not that you'd ever get a burger at Burger King and go the sauce color isn't quite right but yeah just to look <laughs> more appetizing or sometimes in the photo there's not enough sesame seeds on a bun and I'll add that and I'll brown up the bun a bit and you know stuff like that or the the clothing that they the models are wearing it, it'll sort of pull at one side it's not you know, straight enough or the crotch does a weird thing and I'll fix that. But it's a fine line between good photo retouching and bad photo retouching is when sometimes you look at the photos and it looks like it was ironed onto the model. That would be a bad right. photo retouch, yeah. Um, so the, the commercial version of what the Kardashians do their ass every Instagram photo they do, basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Like yeah. I, if I applied as their photo retoucher and they were in charge of releasing all the footage all the photos to the media, I'd make a killing. Right. <laughs> hey, when did you know you were funny? 
when I was little, like my parents got divorced when I was real young, like seven or eight. And because in South Africa, you know, the government want to know everything about your life. I don't know what it's like when you grow up in New Zealand, but in, in um, there they would go every beginning of the term, they would sort of take a little roundup. They go, you have to put your hand up, um, like who lives, you know, who who walks to school, who rides a bike to school, who, you know, like stuff like that, almost like a little census at school. Right. And then um, f- then they ask whose parents are divorced. And I was the only kid in my class whose parents <laughs> were divorced. And because South Africa is so religious and so old school, like it's very old fashioned. And so back in the day, no one's parents were divorced. So the teacher was like, wow. whoa, why are your parents divorced? Why did they get divorced? I didn't know, you know, like I don't know the reason. So I went home and I said to my mom, my teacher wants to know why you got divorced. And she goes, you got to tell your teacher it's because I really wanted to be a widow, but your dad wouldn't drink the poison. And I went, okay, because I didn't know. <laughs> that was a joke. So then the next day I told my teacher and she cracked up laughing and then she goes, wait, don't move. And she went and got other teachers and other teachers got other teachers and I had to tell all of them why my parents got divorced. And I didn't know why it was funny, but I enjoyed the reaction. I, I liked that right. they were laughing. I was like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to need more of that. So, yeah. So that was the that was the first dopamine kick for someone laughing at something you said. Yeah. So yeah. you're only so you said you're only seven, six or seven or eight or whatever you were. Yeah. And and was that then part of the identity at school, figuring out how to make? Because that's an interesting one. That's like telling someone else's joke, but yeah. obviously to be a comedian, all those decades later, you yeah. need to come up with your own stuff. So what's the transition during your childhood to be like? You know, I can repeat a funny line for a movie, or I can tell mum's joke to I can actually I can be funny myself. Yeah. So I realized, cause I've got heaps of uncles. My dad is one of eight. My mom's one of 11. So wow. they would always sit and, and like uh, my dad's family is of Khoisan, you know, the, the traditional, like, um, you know, the Bushman people. So okay. they would always sit around the fire and talk about, you know, just tell stories. And I would just sit there and listen, like I'd sit on in the sand and just listen to them and whatever would make the others laugh. I'm like, Oh, it's just stories. They're laughing at stories. And then I would tell stories and that would make them crack up. And then that was so, and I think that's exactly my style of comedy. I just tell stories of stuff that I think is funny that I've seen or that I go, that would be really funny if that happened. So it's just hundred percent storytelling. And how's your approach to that? Like, what do you do to find those stories? Is it quite, uh, is it quite meticulously planned? Is it kind of, let's just throw a whole bunch of shit against the wall and see what sticks. How do you come to that end of that joke that then's on, that, that then gets like, let's say uh, broadcast on Netflix. Okay. So I, I don't think like, even on my Netflix special, both of them, there are new things that I said on the night um, that just made it into the show because wow. I don't think a joke is ever finished i think it's a living breathing thing and like every year i start i write a one hour show so the way my process is i write four 15 minute sets and then i write the segues and i bring it together but with the same idea behind the jokes and then um but so when i start the show i always started in in melbourne at the comedy festival and then it's a one hour show the first time i hear it is the first time the audience hears it i never trial this stuff i just do it wow but then the show is an hour and then at the end of that year when i've been touring that show 
it's over two hours long because it just keeps growing <laughs> and, and growing. And I don't like every night I just kind of sometimes a joke ends here and sometimes it ends like three sentences later and it becomes better. And then, you know, what could be a throwaway line? Like I've had, uh, I did this bit about um, gay cake, you know, how ordering a cake when you're getting married to a same-sex partner, it was just like a throwaway line, like, you know, we don't eat fruit cake or whatever. And then eventually it became like a nine-minute bit that I had to break down for a five-minute gala set. And stuff like that. It was like, it was just a throwaway line as I was talking about my wedding and I said, gay cake. And then people started laughing and then it just started. I, I just, I literally just told him the actual story about the cake and it just became this big thing. Have you ever had someone, and I don't mean like someone in your, in your family or your team or your friend, but have you ever had a genuine interaction with someone who's seen like the Melbourne comedy festival version and then caught it again like 10 months later when it's 45 minutes longer. Have you ever had that interaction to find out what they think of the, the, the kind of fresh baby versus the teenage show a few months later? Yes, I have. Um, and this one, this guy said to me, he goes, I saw it, I loved it, and I thought I'd come again. He goes, and um, he brought his brother, like I think he saw it in Melbourne and then again in Perth like five months later. And he said, the funny stuff was still there. He goes, but then when the expanded stuff he says i was he was howling he says he didn't think he could oh, love great. it more it's like i think when you have your second child and you sort of that before where you were you scared you're gonna not love the second one as much as the first one but then when the second one is like this <laughs> one, yeah, it just it just kind of expands and you can love them uh we don't want to put this out there but i wonder if that means people are saying like you've got two tours coming up now i understand you're in the uk within the next month or so and the show's called it's personal and then i noticed it was finishing on march 5th and then on march 30th there's a new show so i'm assuming that this is the transitional period um and are you filming it's personal because obviously at the end of the run you've got it all down is this when the filming happens as well yes yeah yeah hopefully i'm filming it in london but uh i haven't you know i haven't locked everything in yet so uh, I was going to loosely <laughs> say that. So yeah, filming it. I mean, it'll be silly. Um, not oh, for sure. I mean, like, I don't know. I mean, I know that it's expensive to do these things these days, but nothing like it used to be. Like nothing like 20, 30 years ago filming things. No, no. Actually now, even the editing I found, like with Netflix too, because the editing is sometimes your biggest nightmare. But um, they you record two shows back to back like literally half yep. an hour in between with a new audience. And then you pick a base show and they just cut new stuff in. And it, it's actually quite easy then. You know, you can finish off the editing, the rough edit in, in a day, day and a half. That's pretty good. And speaking of that, so you've got a UK tour coming up, you've got an Australian tour coming up. Any news on back to uh, Aotearoa with an official tour at any stage yet? Yeah, I, I do New Zealand every second year now because this year I'm also going to Canada and to Europe. I'm doing everywhere, right. like Stockholm, you name it. Um, so I can't, there, there's just, I run out of months. So I do every second year in New Zealand, which is nice because then I always have a spare show in the bank um, because, I, like, I, I don't repeat any jokes. I, I can't stand it. So, um, yeah, so I tour every second year and then... Do a proper proper one, although not done either. Uh, 
I don't go to Dunedin. <laughs> oh, come on. What? They don't bring my tickets. It's so nerve-wracking. I've done a show in Dunedin at a 500-seater theatre where I've pre-sold three tickets. I was a nervous wreck, and then on the night it was sold out because people just go, yeah, we'll go, but they don't buy tickets. So whenever people go, why did you ever come to Dunedin? I go, because my nerves can't handle it. <laughs> um, so speaking of South Africa, New Zealand, Australia, UK, rest of the world, um, does anything change from on stage? Like, do you find that you need to deliver things differently or do they receive things differently or is funny just fucking funny no matter where you are? Funny is just funny no matter where you are, especially if you do storytelling because we all, life is a shared experience. We all have family. We all have relationships. You know, we all have, you know, we all travel on the road, you know, so none of that stuff changes. I always say, when people say it doesn't matter which country you go to, every country think they've got, um, you know, a, a drive, a, a drinking epidemic. You know, the drinking in this country is out of control. Every country says that. Every country says we just want to have a laugh at ourselves. We're really good at having a laugh at ourselves. Every country says that, with the exception of Russia and Germany. Um, <laughs> it's, it's the same as like when there's a national disaster, like the earthquake or a fire. The the leader or the mayor will come out, and yeah, I said mayor and not mayor. The mayor will come out or the prime minister or president and go, we're resilient people. We will rebuild. Everyone says that because the opposite is too fucking grim to imagine. You don't want to, yeah, guys, we're screwed here. We're just going to close the gates on this shithole and um, everyone move, you know, no. Um, I was wondering about uh, your first gig. So you came to New Zealand in about 06 or something, and then yeah. you didn't, my understanding, correct me if I'm wrong, is your stand-up comedy career started in New Zealand. So you were a kid and you knew you were funny, you, you learned how to storytell, you told stories, you were working in a job, and then somehow you got on stage. Tell me about yeah. the first gig. So I was working for Ogilvy as a retoucher and a designer. <laughs> and then um, my friend Leon Fisk sat across from me. And there's been other people who have tried to claim this as their own and they are wrong. Um, Graham, I'm talking to you. So Leon sat across <laughs> from me and he was absolutely obsessed with stand-up comedy. And he used to go, you have to go do stand-up comedy because our offices is in Stanley Street. Uh, and then the parking building is across the road and people would walk across, but I was in charge of the sound system. It was right next to my seat. So whenever they would walk in, I would get a walk-in song for them. And as they would come, I um, would commentate. They're walking in. Next up, we've got Roy Fajinka walking in in leather pants. Bold choice for a man in his late 40s. You know, just stuff like that. And then we would always have such a laugh in the morning and the whole crew would be in such a good mood. And then by nine o'clock, we've all had a coffee. We're ready to work. But then he's like, you have to go do stand-up. You have to go do stand-up. And then when I left Ogilvy to go over to YNR, another agency, Leon, because he was my work husband, was in charge of my leaving gift. And he bought me this little coffee machine and he made a fake contract for an open mic night. And he made me sign it in front of everyone, but he'd already booked it in at the Classic in Auckland, which is the only dedicated comedy club in New Zealand. He booked it in and seats for 70 people. And I felt like I kind of had to go because I'd only been in the country for like a year and a half and I didn't want to look like a dick who's not up for a good time. So I went to the show. I wrote, it's a five-minute spot. 
and I wrote four minutes of material that I practiced in my car after work. And then I gave them one minute to laugh. So arrogant. And then um, (laughs) I just walked out on St. Patrick's Day um, in 2008 and I did my five minutes of material. I went blank. Like it was an extremely memorable moment. I'll never forget it. Um, And then, yeah, they were all laughing. uh, But I knew 70 people in the audience. And so that was the start of it. And it was a good set though. They all laughed, and it's like you look back and then go, "Good, good one. Got that dopamine hit. This is me. I'm. I'm. This is no, me." No, no. The first one was horrendous. Like I, I mean, they were laughing. It was funny, and I look back at it and I, I can still use some of that stuff because I went completely blank. I couldn't remember what I was going to say, and so because it was St. Patrick's Day, I just kind of, I spoke to the owners. I just, and this is my approach to this day still. I just went out and I was just really honest with the audience. I mean, I can't remember what I was going to say. And they were all in green. And then they laughed. And I go, because it's an open mic night, you know, you pay $5 a ticket. And I go, I can't remember what I was going to say. So they laughed. And then I said, and they were all in green. I said, you guys look great. I can't wear green because I end up looking like Shrek. And they laughed. <laughs> and in that moment, I started remembering what I was going to say. But then I sort right. of went with the Shrek thing. And I was like, you know, but then... Afterwards, I went, that's it. I'm never doing that shit again. Um, oh. then the next day, I got a call from Scott, the owner of the club, to say that I'm through to the next round because they do raw quest where they look for new talent. And I got through to the next round. And I said, oh, no, thanks, mate. I'm not interested in that shit. Give it to someone who, who's interested. Um, he said, you were very funny. Everyone was laughing. I said, yeah, everyone was laughing because I knew 70 people in your audience. Um <laughs> And he goes, well, I was in the room. I was laughing. I don't know you. And then because I don't believe in living with regret, um, and I, I believe in seizing every opportunity because that's how you avoid regret, right? And yeah. he goes, why don't you come back, try it again, uh, and see how it goes. He goes, don't tell anyone. So I didn't. I didn't tell anyone. I didn't even tell Leon. I just went back, did it again, um, and it was just – then I was hooked. Uh, and then for the next year or so, I just sucked every time, but I, I still loved it and I, I kept going. And then about a year and a half after my first gig, I basically had to give up my job because comedy was just completely taking over my life. Could you imagine your life today if you hadn't taken that second chance? You got bullied into the first one, but could you imagine what your life would look like today? I mean, like, for example, I'm looking at your CV. Your CV says to me, like, I always wonder about like Kiwi comedians versus British comedians. British comedians have the CV about, you know, panel show, panel show, Edinburgh Festival, panel show, you know, world tour, Netflix. And that's your CV, like almost yeah. maybe more so than any other um, Kiwi. Can I call you a Kiwi? You're in New Zealand, so yeah. Kiwi comedian. Yeah. Um, is that, could you imagine your life today if you hadn't like taken the second show, forget the first show, but the second show? Yeah, no, no, I can't. And with any of that stuff, like every time something comes up, again, it comes back to t- seizing every opportunity. You know, now, I mean, I'm selective with the opportunities because some of the opportunities that come through the door, you go, this is going to steal time from me and my family. I think it changes when you have kids where you kind of have to yep, filter yep. the opportunities. But still, I when an opportunity presents itself, I'm like, yeah, why not? Like, I did a voiceover for a movie that's coming out later this year, an animated movie. And I'm like, I don't know, you know, how to do that. I've never done voice work. I've never, because I've got a very distinctive accent, I can't really voice over ads or stuff. People will immediately know it's me. 
Yeah. Uh, but then when this opportunity came up and it's like, I thought, oh, yeah, I'll, I'll do it. You know, it's a great, it's like with Donald Sutherland. And I thought, yeah, I'm going to do it. And Yeah, of course. I was just in this little sound booth by myself, never having done it. And I think it, there's kind of a strength and a power in not knowing what you're doing because then you can just do your own thing. And you give it a brand new flavor because people go, fuck, we've never heard anything like that. And you go, yeah, because I don't know what I'm doing, <laughs> which is great. Uh, can we get, release any details or is that still a little bit hush-hush? Like, do we know what the movie's going to be or? Um, yeah, it's, it's well, I mean, it's it's all on um, online. So I guess they haven't given us an actual um, release date yet. Oh, but here's my actual character. I'll show you on the, there you go. Yeah. I'm a little rhino. Oh, look, a death tree. Want to leave? Yeah, we should leave. It's, uh, it's, uh. Oh. Let me see. So is it in a, in a game park? Is it in a safari type setting? Is that what the South African accent works so well? No, it's it's in a rainforest, and it's um, okay. Yeah, it's it's about you know the decline of the rainforest and how we're basically destroying the earth. Um, <laughs> you know. So it's a so it's a cartoon version of "Don't Look Up." Is what you're saying? Yeah, basically, but it's got yeah. um, it's got Lauren Laura Dern, RuPaul, Donald Sutherland. There's amazing people in this thing, wow. and then me. So yeah, and then you and then you're going to get to do the red carpet and the world tour with these people as well. I was going to you yeah. said you said about your distinctive voice. Everyone can do one accent. So other than the South African accent, what's your one accent you can do? No, I'm terrible. I'm terrible at voices. I'm, you know, like I lived in the states for a while, so I when I'm there, I can do like a southern drawl and stuff. But no, uh, you know, I'm I'm just I'm not very good at it. All right, but I, I won't I force you. I, I, I won't. I won't do the Graham Norton and prod you. Go on, just go. No, go on. No. Go. Um, <laughs> no. Hey, look. Graham Norton lights him, fills him up with wine beforehand. Yeah, that's true, actually. And the whatever you're drinking now is not going to get us there. Um, last question, I guess, because uh, I ask every comedian this: Where do you stand on hecklers? And do you have any heckling stories? Um, I do have heckling stories. I don't like. I don't see the point of hecklers, especially because ninety percent of them are drunk. Um, and I always think, you know, you don't know other people's stories in the room. Usually when people go out, like, especially if they have a tight budget, this could be their one thing, you know, for the year or the month or whatever, you know, they, they got a babysitter for the kids. They've gone out for dinner. Now they're at the show. Now comes a drunk heckler and just keeps yelling and shouting, um, over the jokes and ruining the night for other people. So I have low tolerance for a drunk heckler. Um, An assisted, you know, sometimes people yell something and it, it helps. And you kind of go, so I've had in the, my last tour now in Auckland, I um, was talking about people protesting, you know, and there was when they did the, the clean car, um, you know, and they had one tractor that protested, they drove over the bridge. They thought there yeah. were going to be heaps, but only one tractor showed up. And then one woman yelled out real you know, she was so drunk and you couldn't, and I went, and we've got the driver here tonight, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> so that kind of helped, you know, but then uh, if they carry on, I just go, okay, that's it. Thank you so much. Shut the fuck up. Because I don't, I don't want them to ruin other people's nights. I'm like, 
I've written the show. It all fits in perfect. It looks like it's just like you say, like just throw stuff together, but it's not. It 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 all flows, it all makes sense, it all and then it helps with the callbacks and stuff. So if you get a heckler that screw up one of those, you know, build ups, then the callback doesn't work, or then the you know, the next thing won't might not work. And I'm like, I don't I don't care for it. So, but I must say, I don't get a lot. I have had a woman in a very polite setting put her hand up. I was doing a corporate and there was like 800 people and she just stood up and she said, excuse me, can you leave? Because they were having dinner. And I went, no, I'm at work. And then I sort of looked to the owner of the bar. It was this beautiful tea room in Adelaide. And I go, roll. And he goes, it's your show. If you... If you want to tell her to fuck off, tell her to fuck off. I was on the other side of the room and I just went, I guess it's a fuck off from us. And then the table, except for two people left. And I was like, well, those two people made a decision. You know, they're not on her side. Um, and then, yeah, but that was it. But no, I don't really get heckled much. I don't think my my persona lends itself to that. I think that's the greatest ever finish to a 2023 version of the two Ronnies. And it's a fuck off from me and it's a fuck off from him. Good night. Hey, Ursula, thanks so much for joining us today. I really appreciate you giving us some time. Uh, If people want to find out more about you, UrsulaCarlson.com for your upcoming UK tour, upcoming Australian tour. It's been an absolute pleasure chatting to you. Thanks so much. Thank you for having me.